This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, so you don't have to worry about monthly hosting fees. It has built-in creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Or you can record and edit using your favorite audio recording software and upload it straight to Anchor. Anchor will also distribute your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Pocket Casts. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and Anchor will even match you with advertisers as your audience grows. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, Anchor is a pretty great place to start. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H. OR.FM to get started. Capitalism is a hellscape, and if you don't die the hero, you live long enough to become the villain. You're listening to Two Weaves in a Trench Coat. I'm Suzanne. And I'm Madison. And this week, uh, I'm going to be talking about the rise and fall of Tokyo Pop, a very prominent, if not the biggest, American publisher of manga at the time. So, Suzanne, what do you know about Tokyo Pop? When I just hear the name, I immediately remember um, all the manga I used to read in middle school because that was pretty much the only manga available on the two shelves they had at the local bookstore in Ireland, um, Mm -hmm. which was like uh, Naruto Bleach and some very age-inappropriate yaoi. Um, (laughs) But the manga me and my friend read was pretty much just all Tokyo Pop, and I didn't even know they disappeared until i was like I, I don't even remember what i was searching but like i didn't know they pretty much just up and disappeared yeah so. it it was definitely sort of pretty quiet unless you were sort of plugged into the radar mm-hmm. but so for for this week my sources are wikipedia publishers weekly daily dot comics beat and polygon.com so beginning with the early history of Tokyo Pop, it was actually formally known as Mix, M-I-X-X Entertainment, and was founded in 1997 by Stuart J. Levy, who also goes by Stu. Uh, I believe the company's headquarters were based in Los Angeles for the duration mm-hmm. of Tokyo Pop existing, although they did eventually have like a UK branch and like a German branch, and I think actually went to Japan at one point. Wow, so they were pretty big. Yeah. When they were still operating under the name Mix Entertainment, they sold Mix Zine or Zine. I think it's Zine. I mean, I say Zine just because I'm a... I'm bad (laughs) at reading words. (laughs) But Mix Zine, and it was a manga magazine where they actually published popular serials like Sailor Moon hmm. weekly 
They were uh, published weekly, so that brought them to a much wider American audience. They also, at the time, created uh, the magazine Smile, which was half girls magazine and half shoujo manga anthology. Mm-hmm. So really, in the beginning, Tokyo Pop actually focused a lot on shoujo and other, like, female feminine demographic manga instead of, like, Shonen Jump or anything. Like, they actually brought over a lot of magical girls like Sailor Moon. They they did stuff like the Gothic Lolita Bible. Did they do Tokyo Mew Mew? Yes. I- I'm looking right now because I feel like that was... Yes, it was. Yeah. They did a North American release. Yeah. Yeah, they also did um, Chobits, Clover, and Cardcaptor Sakura. So it was a lot of focus on shoujo, which is really interesting because for whatever reason, they saw the value in girls as an audience for comics, which in America at the time, and, and still kind of to this day, Mm-hmm. is sort of like, oh, girls don't read comics, which is... Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because shonen is typically the more popular... Like, the more popular manga is shonen. So for them to look at shoujo and, like, I guess take the chance on translating it and bringing it to North America is interesting. Mm-hmm. Definitely an interesting choice, and I think that's definitely a big factor that led to their early success was mm. the fact that they specifically catered to a demographic that was not being catered to and therefore were very easily able to corner the market and and did so like aggressively. Yeah. They're actually responsible for the standardized book trim size, mm. basic industry-wide rating system, and they also engineered prominent like book distribution via retail stores, not just, like, comic book shops. They developed the first ever retail manga displays, which were, like, helped get their work out there and, like, visually, like, in the front of of comic book shops and stuff. Do you know what the landscape was for manga before that? Because as far as I know, like, whenever I look at the volumes of Akira, a lot of them are in the flipped style. Yeah. Because manga is printed... Right to left, when they imported it, they flipped the artwork. Yeah. As far as I know, Tokyo Pop didn't do that with their manga. No, so it was definitely pretty barren, and anything that you could find were those darker slash masculine-leaning mm-hmm. stories like Akira. But speaking of the the actual like comic book format, they pioneered producing their books in the authentic right-to-left Japanese reading format because they didn't like the computer-reversed and mirror images when they were flipped over here really distorted the artwork and made it honestly kind of ugly and sometimes a little hard to, to read or follow. And in 2002, they actually launched the official line of 100% authentic manga, which kept the original right-to-left format and included the original Japanese printed sound effects. Hmm. And lastly, as far as pioneering 
like what is industry standard today. They were instrumental in establishing the $99.99 paperback manga price point. Nine ninety nine. Nine ninety nine. Nine ninety nine. I think you said ninety nine dollars. <gasps> Did I say ninety nine dollars? No, I said nine dollars and ninety nine cents. Nine ninety nine. Under ten dollars. Hundred dollars per volume. No. Under ten dollars. I swear. Um, but that <laughs> that is currently. Uh, Still today, the at least the American industry standard for for paperback manga, and they were a big part in establishing that. I like that they kept the art and the sound effects. Mm-hmm. That was also why every time I borrowed my friend's copy of a manga, they'd be like, "Why are you not book backwards?" <laughs> Along with, "Is that Chinese?" And then people just not <laughs> getting it. I'm like, "No, it's Japanese." And I get back like, oh, it's the same thing, right? No. Yeah. No. I remember going from those early sort of volumes where they did do the, the flipped version and it was all distorted and we're, we're going to read it in the, the proper American way or whatever the <laughs> whatever the hell. But I, re- I remember, yeah, like switching over to the actual properly formatted ones and then also getting all of the comics like, why are you reading it backwards? <laughs> Because I'm cultured. (laughs) I read subtitles too, Barbara. I watch subs exclusively. Thank you. (laughs) Because I'm 12 and think that means anything. (laughs) What was I going to say? I was going to complain about something else white people said to me. Um, Oh, I remembered. I was just going to say that I think it's interesting how often, at least in the past, whenever something was imported, there was this impulse to try and americanize it mm-hmm. like with manga flipping the artwork with anime changing the names of characters and shows because i guess they assumed it would be too difficult for children to follow oh god yeah i do wonder when that change happened when they stopped doing stuff like that like i know like with new pokemon they still change the names because that's what's like that's what people know at this point. Yeah. But like Ash Ash will always be Ash instead of Sat- yeah. Satoshi, I think is his, his yeah. name in in the original. From what I saw doing research on on Tokyo Pop, it seems like it sort of happened until at least the mid early 2000s. So like mm-hmm. 2005 like, between 2003 and 2005, they seemed to pull back on it a lot. Hmm. But it was definitely hardcore in the 90s, Americanized, and at least the early 2000s, for sure. Because I know that they also changed names in, I th- D Grey Man? Maybe not hmm. D Grey Man, maybe Initial D? One of those, it has a D in it. But they definitely changed, uh, like, character names in, in that. I know... I don't know if they changed character names in Tokyo Mew Mew. I don't know if that was just a oh, result. Oh, they did. <laughs> they did. Okay. Cool. I was like, I don't know if that was just a 4Kids dub thing or if they actually did that for the manga. Oh, no, no, no. Not for the manga. The manga was like a whole... The manga's only like seven volumes and Tokyo Pop like didn't mess with it too much. Okay. They're one of those publishers that had like the page in it that's like, these are the honorifics and like yeah! this is the context for what's happening in the manga which i thought was really cool and i think it's sad when we try to like cut that stuff out 
Yeah. Like, listen, guess what? <laughs> there are other countries. I don't know if you knew this, but you can be American and learn about other cultures. Whoa. No. Whoa. Especially ones that use, <laughs> that don't have any, a fucking Latin based writing system and use characters. <laughs> Whoa, you can learn about that, and it's cool, and maybe it gives you more empathy when you're a fucking shithead preteen growing up. I don't know. (laughs) I feel like maybe it did. Like, aren't there studies, like, if you learn more about other people, (laughs) you're, like, less likely to be stuck in your own brain and acknowledge that, like, oh, other people exist and have other, like, different experiences from me. Yeah, why do you think there are so many episodes of uh, 90s shows where the main character is like, there's like a exchange student from Africa or whatever. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I don't think that ever happened once in Sailor Moon, though. I don't think I've ever seen a black person in Sailor Moon. And I'm like- Those um, aren't real. I'm like almost done with season one now. <laughs> yeah, no. Ooh, 90s. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, to be fair, that's like, Anime is like a whole different beast. Like you don't, they're they're still in the stage of like gotta play Where's Waldo to find even like a dark skin yeah. character that isn't just like someone from I don't know, like Kyoto, I guess. Fake India. <laughs> oh boy. But that is a topic uh. for a completely different episode. That's like two <laughs> different topics. That's why mm-hmm. do Americans think all manga characters are white? And uh, POC in manga <laughs> and anime. So Tokyo Pop's decision to switch over to the traditional and original right to left format both allowed the artwork to keep its original form and not be distorted, and it also enabled Tokyo Pop to release most of their graphic series on a frequency three to six times faster than what was the current industry's standard. Oh, damn. So their volumes would hit the shelves monthly, bi-monthly, or quarterly versus the six months or longer of, like, their competitors. And because they could also pump them out so much faster because they weren't taking the time to do all of the flipping and even more, like, visual editing, it let them set that industry price of... $9.99 $9.99 per book when most of their competitors were still charging between $12.99 and $16.99. What were um comics? Do you know? Um like comics they were publishing or their competitors? No, like US comics. Like what was the like I guess graphic novel? Yeah, graphic graphic novels. Marvel and DC were of course big coming out of the nineties, but they had a huge mm-hmm. revival. But of course, that all catered to boys because girls don't read comics. Of course not. But you also, you did have some early competitors, at least in the 2000s. Like, you did have Dark Horse. Mm. Did publish American comics before moving into to, to manga. Mm-hmm. But because of this, like, really quick turnover, it let Tokyo Pop have an aggressive takeover of the, of the market. Like, you literally couldn't escape... Tokyo Pop. If you went into a bookstore, <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're buying manga, it's probably Tokyo Pop at that time period. Yeah, 
Like, that's literally all there was. That was the industry standard mm-hmm. in America. But, like, that's the, the early history of, mm-hmm. like, the first between, like, 1997 and 2003. Then we move on to the rise of Tokyo Pop in, in 2003, which is when they launched their Rising Stars of Manga Talent competition. Which I don't know if, if you remember, but this is where nope. they found a lot of their OELs, their original English language manga. Mm-hmm. This is where they found a lot of their, their authors that they later hired to write to write full-length series. Mm. But the Rising Stars of Manga competition, if you if you don't know, was a competition that called for American manga artists i mean i guess it's just if you if you drew anime style you counted as a manga <laughs> artist the early 2000s were real loosey-goosey um <laughs> but it, it called for american artists to submit a 15 to 25 page english language story of any genre the top 10 entries as judged by the tokyo pop editors would receive cash prizes between 500 and $2,500, which, like, mm-hmm. whoa, in early 2000s money? Damn. And they were also published in an anthology of the winning works. The grand prize winners were given the chance to pitch a full-length manga project to Tokyo Pop for a chance to become a professional mangaka, which Damn. don't think Americans can be mangaka. I think you're just, like, a comic book artist, like, at that yeah. point. Uh, Tokyo Pop held eight rising stars of manga competitions between 2002 slash three and 2008, as well as holding one in the UK in 2005. Hmm. Noble applicants to the competition, uh, who actually went on to get published by Tokyo Pop include Mail Order Ninja by Josh Elder, Van Von Hunter by Mike Schwark. And Ron Kalfershch? Hmm. I fucked that up. Kalfershchk. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Ron. I don't know what your last name is. I'm not gonna try again. Peach Fuzz by Lindsay Sibos, Sibos and Jared Hodges. Dogby Walks Alone by Wes Abbott. MBQ by Felipe Smith. Atomic King. Dai Dogon by Nathan Marrer. And lastly, the only one that I know from this list, and I still have volumes of it on my shelf, Visengast by M. Alice Legros. <laughs> That's the only one I know from that list. Visengast is really good. I've been, they're apparently like republishing it as an, as like collected volumes in like, th- like three volumes. And I'm like, ooh, I may actually get those. <laughs> Because I do really love Bizengast because mm-hmm. M. Alice Legro did not try and like really make it look like a like a manga. Like she didn't try and do like an overtly anime style. It's her own mix, and it's just the sort of beautifully gothic hellscape. Mm-hmm. They also published several series based on American games, films, and characters, such as. World of Warcraft. I still have those too. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts and 
a few of the Jim Henson films, actually. I believe they did Labyrinth and Dark Crystal manga, actually. They also released the first volume of a series based on the Hellgate London video game in April of 2008. So they they really branched out when they started doing self-published things instead of just licensing. Mm Mm-hmm. I got curious because I have seen the Star Wars manga floating around in comic book stores, and they also, Tokyo Pop also published that. Oh, man. That's where a little Bishonen Luke Skywalker is from. (laughs) My son. There's a a Star Wars manga. My son. I think there's a Batman manga, too. Oh, God, probably. (laughs) But, like, these were, like, I, I know the Star Wars manga was made by, like, in Japan. Batman manga was also um, by Japanese artists. Oh, hell yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but funnily enough, Tokyo Pop was also instrumental in introducing manhwa mm. to Western audiences. Yes! Oh my god. So, I'm so sorry. Um, My favorite manhwa is... The story called Demon Diary, which, like, nobody knows about. And I had to, like, scrabble for used copies of. Because, like, Tokyo Pop obviously doesn't publish stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. But, like, I fucking loved it for some reason. And I vividly remember it being a Tokyo Pop manga. And I think the reason I liked it is because the boys in it were pretty. And I really like the <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that seems to be a staple. Yeah. To be honest, it was, it was pretty boys. Um, it was faintly gay, so you know, middle school me was all about it. Hell yeah! So manhwa, if you don't know, is the general Korean term for comics and print cartoons. Common usage apparently also includes animated cartoons, but uh, outside Korea, the term usually refers to South Korean comics. Though, apparently, the comics industry is emerging in North Korea, but it's unfortunately probably mostly propaganda. Yeah. So. But um, some of the the works that were originally brought over by Tokyo Pop were series like King of Hell and Model, which are both, again, Korean, but were usually mistaken for manga. Mm-hmm. Tokyo Pop ended up publishing a lot of Korean artist works, and I think the majority of Western fans did not realize that they weren't manga from Japan, because mm. Tokyo Pop did not differentiate between the two. They just licensed stuff and published it. I don't remember them saying, this is from Korea, or anything. Yeah. It's just like, here's another comic. I think the only reason I knew is because it wasn't right to left and i think at some point someone mentioned the word manhwa to me and then i started noticing it because you can because they didn't translate the special effects you could see like the korean sound effects so yeah. that was like a way i could tell but if the only manga you have experience with is japanese and the vast majority majority of it is japanese manga then i think a lot of people might have missed that yeah like i know for me i didn't know until literally researching for this episode that there was a separate term for it yeah. But I definitely, when reading it, like, sort of knew it wasn't manga because, like, the style is so, like, it is vastly different. If you read mm-hmm. manga a lot or watch anime and then you read a manhwa, like, 
It's very different visually. The style, like, I guess the characters are a lot more stylized to be very beautiful and, like, live. Like, everyone is very, Mm. like, ethereal, even if it's, like, a slice of life about a school. Like, everyone is just Mm -hmm. weirdly ethereal. But a lot of what you see is fantasy or supernatural, as far as I can remember from from reading certain stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Demon Diary is, like, supernatural magic Mm -hmm. stuff. In... March 2006, Tokyo Pop and HarperCollins Publishers announced a co-publishing agreement in which the sale and distribution rights of some Tokyo Pop manga and books would be transferred to HarperCollins in mid-June of that same year. This agreement enabled Tokyo Pop to produce its famed in-house made English language manga and also adaptations of HarperCollins books. Hmm. So Meg Cabot's were some of the first to be translated into manga, and she's- Like Princess Diaries? Princess Diaries, baby! <gasps> Is there a Princess Diaries manga? Yep. I'm pretty, oh. sh- I'm pretty I've never seen it, but I'm pretty sure. You want to know the other one that they immediately did? Warrior Cats. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, wow. Warrior Cat's got a manga. That that makes sense. I've, I've never read it. Literally, the only interaction oh. I have with Warrior Cats is reading um, our hobby drama and reading about, like, some character was resurrected that was very controversial. Probably. And, yeah. It was, like, pages of someone explaining what the drama was it was fascinating but i have i have no idea what the story's about other than like there are cats and magic yes i read at least there are several like series now in Mm -hmm. the universe i read at least the first handful of volumes of the very first series and i remember Mm -hmm. it it was pretty good (laughs) like it was fun it was interesting it was new Mm-hmm. The cats were not anthropomorphized in like a furry way, which was yeah. interesting. Which was interesting. Like they were just straight up cats living in the woods, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which was fun. <laughs> that talk, yeah. Um, but there, there's a warrior cats manga, and honestly, I may go look for it because I don't know if I want to reread the whole book. But mm-hmm. um, but notable entries for these original English language manga. Include Dramacon by Svetlana Chimova. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that pronunciation. I'm sorry, Svetlana. I know how to pronounce your first name. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh, Shmovkova, Shmov Shmovkova. Pretty, sh- pretty sure. Dramacon. I actually had Dramacon. I thought it was fun. Uh, My Dead Girlfriend by Eric Wright. And another one I have, Warcraft The Sunwell Trilogy by Richard A. Knack. So, continuing on from from that, uh, Tokyo Bob also, as another pioneering moment for them, helped pioneer the cine manga format. A blend of cinematic properties and sequential art that uses imagery from movies and television series. 
If you ever watched anything on their YouTube channel, you probably know what this is. Because they exclusively, like, used their YouTube channel to make these really interesting, like, voice acted with, like, cool camera changes and special effects and all of that. But it was still just the basic, the very basic manga pages. Like, they weren't creating any new imagery. They just added a lot of special fancy effects, uh, like sound effects, visual effects, and I don't remember the specific details, but I do remember there being, like, a weird controversy about choosing a specific voice actor for one of these things. Mm -hmm. I don't remember any of the details, but I remember it being, like, a big thing for a hot minute. I wonder if those were region-locked, because I don't remember ever seeing those. They might have been at the time. Mm. And now... We are, unfortunately, heading into sort of the beginning of the fall. Mm. In June of 2008, Tokyopop announced that it was being restructured, along with its name being changed to Tokyopop Group, uh, a holding group with several new subsidiaries. Tokyopop operations in the United States specifically were split into two, Tokyopop Inc. and Tokyopop Media. Tokyopop Inc. consisted of the company's existing publications, businesses, while Tokyopop Media focused on the company's digital and comics to film works, because they also did license anime. It was never as big as their their manga got, but they, they did still like have the licenses to several anime that they then published hmm. and distributed. But during this restructuring, Tokyo Pop laid off 39 positions. Which, you know, it's a big company. It's dominating the, the American manga scene, right? That doesn't... That's only 39 people. That can't be a big amount of the company, right? That was uh, about 35 to 40% of its American workforce. Oh, no. They were actually not... Uh, hugely staffed. Uh, so laying off those 39 positions was a huge chunk of their American workforce, and most of the positions cut were ones that were involved in the direct publication of the books, which then resulted in a scale-back of, of publication. Mm -hmm. They cut the volumes released per year by approximately 50%. From what they were doing. Mm. Which I don't have the exact number for. But it was enough where like. People were complaining that they were oversaturating the market. Mm. With how much they were publishing. Do you know why they. Was this because of the financial crisis. That they had to like restructure. Uh huh. Yeah. Every time it's like 2007, 2008. It's like it's because of the recession. It's because of the recession. <laughs> America's <laughs> a hellscape. Um. <laughs> But so in cutting back approximately by 50%, their averages were now between 20 to 22 volumes a month, which again is cut back from a number that was so high that a lot of people were complaining that like they were saturating, oversaturating and like completely taking over the market. Mm -hmm. In December of 2008, citing dramatically low sales in the publishing industry, on a whole, Tokyopop 
laid off eight more employees, including three editors, and noted that the company would further have to rearrange some of its upcoming publications schedules because of this. Mm. So we're, we're really getting into sort of like all the dominoes starting to tip over and they're going to knock down that house of cards. Can't believe this started with like, what is it? Subprime mortgages to the downfall of a manga giant. We need to make that as a meme for the Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Downfall of mortgages. Tokyo Pop collapsing. <laughs> so on August 31st of 2009, the next year, Tokyo Pop announced that uh, Kodansha. Oh, Kodansha, yeah. They publish Attack on Titan. Yes. So uh, Kodansha, historically a large part of Tokyo Pop's catalog, like like a significant part was allowing all of its licensing agreements to uh, with the North American and German divisions of Tokyopop to expire for reasons unknown. Hmm. So Kodansha is a Japanese publisher, right? Yep. Because of this, uh, Tokyopop was forced to leave several of their Kodansha series unfinished, including incredibly popular series like Rave Master, Initial D, Get Backers, and Life, which were popular and did bring money into Tokyo Pop. And also, as a consequence of this, it would be unable to reprint any previously published volumes functionally, rendering every single Kodansha owned Tokyo Pop like property out of print. Oh, that sucks. That effectively knocked out. Anywhere between 30 to 50% of their catalog. Oh my god. And it became out of print. And they were also, like, never able to finish those series. Mm -hmm. Which I believe I just mentioned, but I'm pretty sure I wrote this script in a fugue state, so... (laughs) Uh, Several other titles licensed and published by Tokyopop, including bestsellers like Cardcaptor Sakura, Chobits, Clover... And Magic Knight Ray Earth were reacquired by Dark Horse Comics. Hmm. And Samurai Deeper Kyo was relicensed by competitor Del Rey Manga. Which also doesn't exist, right? Uh, no, they do. Uh, Del Rey. Let's get sidetracked real quick. Um. No, they're defunct. Oh. Yeah. So they are also defunct. Uh, we may do an episode of them too. Kodansha took them over. Oh, interesting. Okay, so they were like, "Fuck, <laughs> fuck these Americans. We'll just do it ourselves." Apparently, pretty much, I guess. Jesus, they're, I guess they were just like, "Oh, y'all actually reading this? Okay. Oh, y'all are actually making money. Oh, we'll just take that back then." <laughs> but yeah, a lot of titles were either reacquired by Dark Horse or picked up by Del Rey, which, again, further impacted their catalog and, like, anything that they lost, they couldn't functionally ever reprint Mm -hmm. uh, unless they ever renegotiated. Now we get into the actual hard fall of Tokyo Pop. 
It, it hung on for a surprisingly long time after this, actually. In February of 2011, the president and chief operating officer, John Parker, resigned from the company and took the position of vice president of business development for Diamond uh, and Diamond Comic Distributors, usually called Diamond Comics or DCD is an American comic book distributor. So he left and then went and took a vice president position for a competitor, more or less. Mm. Parker's departure left only three remaining executives. The founder and CEO, Stuart Levy, publisher, Mike Keeley, and vice president of inventory, Victor Chin. In March 2011, Tokibop continued to lay off workers Removing many high-profile employees, such as longtime manga editors Lillian Diaz and Troy Luter, and at the same time, Tokyo Pop's management also eliminated the position of directors of sales operations, which you think hmm. you would need to run a major distribution business. <laughs> Perhaps. Especially if you're, like, crumbling, I guess. Yeah, so after these layoffs... This round of layoffs, this left the company with a reported total of six employees total. Um, what? Six whole employees to run this entire manga publishing empire. Uh, no. Uh-huh. Oh my, what year was this? 2011. Oh my god. And remember that the sort of dominoes falling started all the way back in 2009 at this point. 2009, 2008. Imagine being, like, in the company that long and just seeing it slowly shrink and, like, from being, from, like, dominating the North American manga industry to six employees. And still struggling to hold on and and function as a business. Wow. In an interview with ICV2, Stuart Levy, the CEO and owner, revealed that a majority of the layoffs were due to the bookstore Borders, who was Tokyo Pop's largest customer, filing for bankruptcy in March of 2011. Borders was also affected by the recession. <laughs> I miss Borders. Borders was like where I discovered manga in America, and it was super mm-hmm. exciting. And then the one Borders I used to go to all the time got turned into like a fucking hockey store. Yeah. And I'm still mad about it. Every time I drive past that stupid hockey store, I'm like, you shouldn't be there. No, no, no. Wait, no. It wasn't. It wasn't a hockey store. No, there was one Borders that got turned into a hockey store and then another mm-hmm. one that got turned into a Buffalo Wild Wings. Oh, gross. Their food's garbage. Right? I... Heterosexual culture. <laughs> oh, no. The cishets. <laughs> I still, to this day, hold to the opinion that Borders was absolutely better than Barnes and Noble, and I'm sad that Borders closed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like even I got like two seconds to appreciate the Borders glow before it closed, and I still feel that way. Yeah, I definitely got not only ninety percent of my manga from Borders. I got like ninety percent of all of my books, half of which I still own from Borders specifically. <laughs> I always preferred them to to Barnes and Noble. And now if I want to go to a real book and brick and mortar bookstore, I got to go to Barnes and Noble and or find like some tiny indie Yeah, store. like I mean if if I 
if I'm feeling lazy, I will go to to Barnes and Noble, but I will most of the time try and support indie and local both like regular bookstores and and comic book shops because mm-hmm. fuck corporations <laughs> truly so because borders filed for bankruptcy in this interview that Stuart levy was talking about the layoffs because they were no longer they were also no longer carrying toku pop stop because of the bankruptcy and Weirdly enough, not paying any debts that the company owed to Tokyo Pop. I don't know what kind of debts a bookstore would have to a distributor of manga, but I, I don't think any details have ever been specifically given on that. But Stuart Levy was quoted as saying in this interview, they owe us a significant amount of money. We're not a big company. Y'all got six employees. We have six employees. Uh, We're not a big company, and with less cash than we planned, we had to regroup to survive. So the recession and borders closing was a big part of why Tokyo Pop ended up with six employees and still trying to run a business. We've had to let people go who were very dear to me. This was the hardest part because these people were my friends and collaborators, for specific editor positions and, like, higher-up positions and stuff. Like, people who were tended to be there had been there for a, sig- a significant amount of time. So, mm-hmm. like, I can't speak to the actual, like, work group dynamic or anything, but, like, he at least considered a lot of the people that he worked with friends and, and did actually not have a great time letting them go which i imagine which does speak to the fact that it despite appearances of of Tokyo Pop dominating the industry they were actually relatively small and tight knit mm-hmm. so like it's not like he was the ceo of a fortune 500 company and was like never in the office didn't know any of his employees names Mm. At, at least the people who like worked directly under him i imagine like if you are like one of the first people to bring shoujo manga to the u.s you have to be very passionate about it so yeah. like it must have sucked to have to let that go yeah and on april 15th 2011 tokyo pop announced that it would close its los angeles california based North American publishing operations by May 31st of the same year. That's so sad. However, with this announcement, Tokyo Pop's film and television projects, as well as European European publishing operations and global rights sales, would not be closing. However, the UK branch would cease to operate after May 31st due to their reliance of importing the North American branch's product and no longer having any. So they ended up closing anyway. It's interesting to me how, like, I got into manga in, like, 2008, 2007, when they were, like, in the midst of pretty Mm -hmm. much, like, folding. And, I mean, I don't know if it's because we were kids, but, like, I wouldn't have realized any of this as an adult, I don't think. Because what they projected outward as a company, it was completely different from what was apparently happening behind the scenes having six employees 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Damn. And on May 24th, Tokyopop stated that the manga they licensed would all revert to their original owners, who then at that point, if they wished, may license the titles to other companies. The aftermath of of Tokyopop shuttering its doors and, and closing down, they had a... They had a, a a real um hopeful and brave sort of gung-ho attitude because <laughs> on December 10th, 2012, Tokyo Pop's website relaunched with a letter from management stating that the company was down to a few select employees who were starting a new incarnation of the company. Very optimistic of them. Hmm. I believe that at this time, they also published a tweet on the official Tokyo Bot Twitter that was like, all we want to do is just is like distribute manga again. And we're going to try and get back to that, mm-hmm. which like good for them. I have a feeling you're going to tell me something. It went horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> I mean, not as bad as, as my reaction just then may have uh, <laughs> influenced your opinion. Okay. Throughout the publishing closure, Tokyo Pop Media actually remained open for business because remember they had split into two different branches and they continued efforts to produce film and TV adaptions, adaptations of Tokyo Pop's manga, which I feel like would be difficult if you're reverting all of your licenses, but yeah. Were they like allowed to do that? Like how did that I work? couldn't tell you maybe the licenses are different if you're adapting it into a different medium versus just mm. publishing it in its mm. actual f- in the same format. So they're doing this as well as it reinvigorating the Tokyo Pop YouTube channel. <laughs> I don't I couldn't tell you how that went. Launching several original web series and adding trailers for Japanese film and TV. So they did manage to like make a little bit of money. Um, but they were no longer publishing manga at the time. Do you know what series they were doing? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. I did not want to scroll back on their <laughs> YouTube channel. <laughs> I didn't want to scroll back almost half a decade of videos oh, <laughs> to Jesus. see what they were doing. So That's fair. Oh, I just searched because I was, I was curious and the top result if you search tokyo pop on youtube is someone doing a video about the fall of tokyo pop oh yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. in 2015 at anime expo in mm. san diego comic-con tokyo pop announced that it would be relaunching its publishing operations in north america by 2016 and hinted that its first uh, major licensor would be disney which is actually true they've done adaptations of like Nightmare Before Christmas and the live action Beauty and the Beast movie with Emma Watson that came out a couple years ago. Hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, they republished like Biz and Gast as like new, really nice collected volumes instead of several different paperback volumes. They're actually like collected editions now, which is nice because again, hmm. I may buy, I may pick that up. Because I never, I never found out how it ended because Tokyo Pop <laughs> went under. <laughs> I only have like up to volume four and I think there are like six or seven. So I never mm. found out how it ended. So at this panel at Anime Expo, 
they outlined their, like, sort of current plan, which included a new website now hosted by Nerdist, releasing new manga titles through a print-on-demand service, publishing art book collector's editions and possibly light novels in addition to manga, releasing new merchandise through an order-on-demand service like Cafe Press, renegotiating licenses for older series, including series which were cancelled when the company ceased operations, using Kickstarter to gauge interest on potential performance of titles and creditors before taking them on. That seems iffy. I think you could just make a poll for that and not use Kickstarter. Well, like, how much revenue do they have? I or, like, how many know. employees do they have at this point? Because it kind of sounds like a couple of them are like, we really don't want to let this go, so we're going to try everything possible to try and keep this company alive, pretty much. That is more or less what happened. Yeah. As far as I could tell. They also announced that they would f- focus on film and television rights for a l- original English language manga, that OEM, OEL for uh, properties that the company still retained the rights to. And plans to publish a new Wattpad-like self-publishing app, Pop Comics, uh... which will function as a kind of YouTube for comics in app form. That sounds like a terrible idea. So, like, Webtoon? Yep. But they called it Wattpad-like, and I immediately was turned off. <laughs> no. I discovered Wattpad, like, as I was winding down in my um, prolific career as a fic author. Um, <laughs> and there was, like, some stuff in there that's, like, that was really good because there were people who were actually serious about writing and stuff in there. And then uh-huh. there was just, like, you know, teenage girls got to find their outlet to write their indulgent self-insert fanfics, which, like, yeah. power to you. But uh, it's kind of... There's, like, no filter for quality so it got clogged up with a lot of uh like things of dubious quality very quickly i mean honestly i feel like wattpad was ended up being similar to like fanfic posted on live journal where like you publish stories and people could find them and that was cool. Where but where like Live Journal was done by like young adults and like young adult millennials and like teenager millennials. Wattpad's like a lawless wasteland of children writing fic. <laughs> and there is absolutely no quality control, community based or otherwise. Yeah. Where like I feel like other fic sites like fanfiction.net um live well journal. if you wanted if you wanted to read fanfiction you went to fanfic.net if you wanted to read like the good stuff you go to ao3 because that was because you have to get on a wait list to get into ao3 in the first place yeah so mostly people who are very good at what they did ended up on ao3 yeah and i mean at the time it was you went to fanfic.net if you weren't picky and you went to Live yeah. Journal if you were looking for like the the fandom big bangs because that was yeah. really big. Those were um, groups of authors that would work with like prompts and themes and stuff and publish into like whatever the group function for Live Journal was, which made it easy to find a lot of good fic authors at once because they would 
self-quality control each other, mm-hmm. more or less. So there was at least that community version of quality control on LiveJournal, and there's not that on Wattpad. <laughs> Which, like, is cool because, like, I think definitely kids should have an outlet to write, especially where they won't be judged for it, because whomst among us has not written absolute garbage trash? Absolutely. Like, I say they don't have any sort of quality control, and I don't mean that as a bad thing. I'm just saying that as, like, a <laughs> statement for the literal state of of the website and its content. <laughs> like, it's literally not a bad thing. I think if kids want to write, that should be something that's fostered in them. That should be a creative outlet that is encouraged mm-hmm. and, like, helped to grow. Because, by God, reading comprehension is so important. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like writing fanfic genuinely helps with that honestly but again i definitely think fostering that is is very good mm-hmm. for kids and young adults please please don't be mean to them please <laughs> encourage them and be nice to them and like give them genuine criticism if it's like really terrible but like gently at least at the very least do not do it where they can see it cuz that's just crushing yeah like don't be like even if it's garbage, don't... <laughs> Unless it's my immortal, find something nice to say about it. <laughs> um, so, in January 2018, Tokipop announced the release dates for three new properties. Konohana Kitan, Futari Bea, A Room for Two, and Hanger. Additionally, they initiated International Women of Manga to showcase female manga writers with the publication of five titles, Ocean of Secrets, Goldfish, Camo, Undead Messiah, and Princess Amalti? Amaltia? Tokyo Pop's Nightmare Before Christmas, Zero's Journey, was nominated for two uh, 2018 Diamond Gem Awards in the categories... Best all-age series and uh, licensed property of the year. Hmm. So, 2018. Doing pretty good. Unfortunately, here's where we get to the drama. Oh, no. So, in the wake of a powerful recession, a declining publishing market, the border's bankruptcy, and apparently his own uh, managerial missteps, Stu Levy has incredibly understandably, become a sort of focus for criticism over his management skills of the company and his decisions, leading to wariness and even disdain about Tokyopop's attempt to start back up. Hmm. Like from the industry or fans? or Both. So Tokyopop had a string of controversial contract issues, including the notorious instance in 2008 when it asked creators to give up their moral rights, the basic right to be credited as the creator of a work, as well as right of ownership, while joking that moral rights were bad because the French thought them up. Uh, mm, What? Here's the actual excerpt from the contract. Oh no. That this was from. 
Moral rights and your credit. Moral rights, quote unquote, is a fancy term, parentheses, the French thought up, that basically has to do with having your name attached to your creation, parentheses, your credit, and the right to approve or disprove certain changes to your creation. Of course, we want you to get credit for your creation, and we want to work with you in cases in case there are changes, but we want to do so under the terms in this pact instead of under a fancy French idea. So in order Um, for us to adapt the manga pilot for different media and to determine how we should include your credit in tough situations, you agree to give up any moral right you may have. This is a legal binding contract? This was a contract, and it's written in such an incredibly juvenile way it's so patronizing it's patronizing and it is staggering that they thought this was an acceptable legal document but that's so sketchy because i assume the people who are entering this contest are probably amateur like young Mm -hmm. amateurs who are really passionate about manga and just really want their work out there so like this feels like trying to con young very yep. young people into giving uh-huh. away their work and not realize that's what they're doing because they're yep. young. Yep. <laughs> but so sketchy. Absolutely predatory to young, naive artists and writers. So a lot of people had some choice things to say about this, including oh. including apparently very normally mild-mannered Brian Lee O'Malley, who is the writer and artist of Scott Pilgrim. Hmm. He had a crushing condemnation in response. I'm going to go through this piece of shit with you because I'm sure a lot of aspiring cartoonists read my blog and I want to do my part to help you all have a future. Read my bloggy lips. If you sign this contract, say goodbye to the future. I'm not going to speculate about where they're being untruthful. I'm just going to let them say what they're saying. It's bad enough. Oh. And he was not the only one. Like, actual, like, several actual incredibly popular and published authors of comics and manga were like, if you are a new artist, don't sign this because you will never be able to work on anything again because they will own you. Mm -hmm. And also with this, at various points during its earlier history, Tokupop had also denied credits to its creators along with the right to control their own work and made them give up rights to the characters that they had created and also arguably failed to negotiate fair rates for their contracts. That sucks. Yeah. And keep in mind that this was with them doing that Rising Stars of Manga contest, which Ugh. routinely brought in not only dozens, but like by the end of it, hundreds of aspiring artists who wanted to get published. Like, as soon as I heard about the contest, I was like, oh boy, I hope this isn't a thing where they're trying to get free work at a young artists and (laughs) well at least with the the manga the rising stars contest it did originally seem to come from a decently good place and they did like the people who won got published in an anthology but also won cash prizes Mm, yeah but 
I can't speak to those who were later scouted or signed on to the company because just from that one passage, they were incredibly (sighs) predatory. That's so scummy. And finally, on Tumblr, writer Alex uh, DeCampi wrote a widely reblogged post responding to the news about Tokipop coming back. She is a former Tokyo Pop creator, and she had plenty to say about the company's shady rights clauses and sort of predatory scummy behavior. So from this widely reblogged post, uh, Stu wants creators to pay back the full amount of advances and editorial costs to get rights back. No, what? At least that's what he told me with Cat and Mouse. But... My IP was not part of the Tokyo Pop bankruptcy. None of the English language, original English language manga was, to, to, to her knowledge. Which means he already wrote down all those costs when he shuffled the assets around in the traditional game of pre-bankruptcy Monty. That, folks, is why reversion on bankruptcy clauses are a surefire way of kissing your work goodbye for fucking ever. <sighs> That's not how, how like, a legit publishing company works. Like, you don't pay... Like, you earn out your advance. You don't pay back to get the rights to your own work back. Yep. So, finally, one of the last things she had to say was, I will never trust a Stu Levy-run Tokyo Pop, and part of the reason isn't how fair they may or may not have grown to respond to the market as I noted in my Tumblr piece, Stu is an ideas guy who will spin the new Tokyo Pop and cloak it in every cool creative arts buzzword buzzword that he can find. Oof. So she's definitely worried that it'll be this, they'll spin it as this cool, creative, hip new thing and then still keep those incredibly predatory and scummy licensing rights signing away practices that they had mm-hmm. back when they were still operating originally. Yeah, I feel like they they like could very easily spin this like underdog tale yeah. now. And now I'm kind of like mm-hmm. Yeah. So far from what I could tell, they have not made any news good or bad. They've just sort of been chugging along. So So sort of in conclusion, Toyo Pop did a lot of good. For the industry. They did a whole lot of good. It seems like they started from a really good place. And they wanted to... They wanted to bring this cool medium of manga to America. However, (laughs) capitalism is a hellscape. And if you don't die the hero, you live long enough to become the villain. (laughs) Which clearly happened with Tokyo Pop. They went from something that seemed genuine to being incredibly predatory and scummy towards these artists that on the surface they claimed they wanted to get their published and get their names out there and have like this whole cool thing of of original english language produced work where on literally on the other hand they're in their official legal contract they're telling you to give up your rights in the most condescending and juvenile way possible. 
so it is, it is sort of a mixed bag. It's, it is literally, you either die the hero or you live long <laughs> enough to see yourself become the villain. That is what happened with Tokyo Pop. And then they got resurrected. So I guess they're an undead villain now, but that remains to be seen. Cause again, no word positive or negative that I could find mm-hmm. in recent news. Like literally, yeah. I think the last thing was from like 2008 or 2018. Yeah. Thank you. 2018, not 2008. 2018. <laughs> I guess in regards to that, support literally any other publisher. <laughs> I mean, I guess best case scenario, if there is like, especially an indie artist you like, they usually have like, go support their Patreon or yeah. buy their self-published volumes or whatever. Yeah. There are a ton of like really great artists doing work right now Yeah, that are severely underpaid, so... Yeah, buy their buy their stuff on Gumroad, support their Patreon, subscribe to their webtoons. Like there's so much more you can do to support indie content creators without going through a licensing company like Tokyo Pop that is again a corporation and truly the market has changed so much from when they started in 1997 that like you don't need them. <laughs> Don't sign your rights away. Um, yeah, no, that was really cool because, like, I didn't. I read their their licensed work and then kind of forgot about them mm-hmm. until I heard that they had gone under, and then I didn't know that they were still doing stuff or really yeah. about any of their like sketchy stuff. Yeah, same. I truly did not know about any of the sketchy stuff either. I think I heard maybe some sort of like whisperings about it at like one one of the first or second anime expos I went to because that was mm-hmm. right before like when they started tanking but otherwise in our in both our cases we were just too young that like that finer point of it went over our heads all of a sudden mm-hmm. like there was this thing that was cool and got us introduced to anime and manga and then it was gone mm-hmm. yeah. more or less is what happened but uh what have you been watching this week? Uh, oh, episode 1001 of Detective Conan just came out. Oh, hell yeah. Good for you. Is good it for though? Her. Good for her. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, great for the show. But uh, the fact that I don't know if it was like satisfying or what when I got to click like finished episode on episode <laughs> 1000 and watch the counter go up. Oh, um, God. Wild shit. Like I was talking to someone on Twitter. Because they've also watched some Detective Conan. I think mostly the dub, which, like, they didn't dub all of it, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they're like, oh, gosh, I didn't even know they had a thousandth episode out. I definitely, have, I definitely haven't seen every episode. And I was like, Haha, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Me clicking done on episode a thousand. Um, but bringing it back around to what I've watched this week. I took a break from Sailor Moon. I'm paused, like, right before Sailor Jupiter shows up. Mm-hmm. She's my favorite, and I love her. She is a GNC goddamn icon, and always has been. I love you, Makoto. Sailor Jupiter, my beloved. Um, she's always <laughs> been my favorite, even when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I wasn't projecting not being a girl or anything on nope. Sailor Moon characters. Nope. Also, no gay feelings there whatsoever. Oh, also... <laughs> Uh, no no gay feelings whatsoever um but actually took a break from sailor moon and i watched all of 
Dorohidoro with uh, oh, Jack. Cool. Uh, it was really fun. I don't like the anime style. It's like weird 3D models. <laughs> Looks better than X-Arm, but so does everything. <laughs> Dude, I... Like the last episode, I realized that I could play it at one and a half speed, which made oh it God. better because I got through it faster, but also it's still... I think it slightly improved the pacing, but it was still awful. The good Oof. part is like scrolling down to see all the comments where people are like, I too, I'm also watching this because it's garbage. We're, this is like a group experience at this point. Oh, man. <laughs> That's your trauma bonding. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually really liked Dorohidoro. Like, I, mm-hmm. again, not a huge fan of the... um. That they chose to use 3D models on a more, on like a traditional like 2D background. Mm. And so like some of the facial animations are are kind of janky, but the actual movements of the models themselves like in fight scenes are good. It's Mm -hmm. literally just like the the facial rigging is kind of iffy, but it's fun. I love it. There's a dude has magic and uses it to make mushrooms. There's also a very large lady named Noe, and I love her and would very much like her to step on me. She's huge. She's like... (laughs) She's stacked as hell, dude. (laughs) I don't know what it is about... I think I remember telling somebody that, like, the more it seems like a woman could snap me in half, the more I'm, like, into it. Yeah! Yep! (laughs) Always. That's just that's just the queer experience, I think. That's all of my friends. I don't know anyone who isn't into dudes or ladies or gender non-conforming who are bigger than them who could break them in half. Like truly universal experience. But it's really fun. The character dynamics are are really fun. I think it it only has like one season right now that's animated. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it got picked up for a second one, but I'm definitely gonna pick up the manga because I wanna see where it's going. I like it. It's fun. It's violent and wacky and has big Alice in Wonderland vibes and, like, literally feels like Studio Ghibli if they were evil. (laughs) Which I love. It's Studio Ghibli if they were unhinged and evil. Netflix, show me the dark Studio Ghibli. (laughs) Um, But that's what it feels like. And it's really fun. I hope that they get a season two. I'm gonna, I think, uh, I'm definitely gonna go back to watching Sailor Moon this week and then maybe pick up another short series. I have a couple in my queue. I don't know which one I want to watch, though. But definitely gonna at least get to season two of Sailor Moon. (laughs) We'll see. But yeah, you you wanna go ahead and do the credits? You can find us on Twitter at Two Weebs in a Trench, Instagram at Two Weebs in a Trench Coat, or email us at beebsinatrenchcoat at gmail.com. Read us on Apple Podcasts, which is, I know every podcast says this, but it's super helpful if y'all could throw us a rating up there. Please! So it helps us Please. turn up. <laughs> helps us show up in search results. And also it's just neat feedback. And yeah. our opening theme is Our Way by Vitney. And the music you're listening to right now is Chocolate Sunglasses by Drunken Foreigner Band. And I'm Madison. And I'm Suzanne. And always remember to please, dear God, read the fine print.